Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. Andy, this trailer... They they gave the, the it was the cardinal sin I think it has become the cardinal sin maybe they revealed the underwear in the trailer Andy <laughs> yes yes they did 
How dare they? <laughs> Alice Eve's uh, big un- uh, Starfleet-issued uh, underwear reveal that that uh, ended up being a, a, a sequence of some revulsion to many Star Trek fans. But, you know, other than that, I, I don't know. I didn't think the trailer was bad. <laughs> I actually was like, you know, I felt like the trailer pushed it in a direction where I didn't know really where it was going. I didn't get any hint about it being... Um, kind of a, you know, the Kelvin timeline uh, story about uh, Khan. You didn't. No, it's it's pretty hidden from the trailer, don't you think? No. You think that they reveal it? Well, okay. Uh, the trailer that is linked in our show notes is the first international trailer. And I don't, I, I forgive me, I didn't actually look at the first domestic trailer. But the trailer I watched, at the end, we have Harrison, and he says, I'm better than everyone or all of you or whatever. And that just reeked of con to me. It just reeked of enough con that that this I I feel like I knew. And that was my big question for you. Did you have a sense that this was con? Did you know had it been spoiled for you that it was con going in? I don't remember if it was spoiled to me, but I do remember that impending sense of doom that they were doing a con story. Well, they had been from the time they started development. I mean, they had talked about oh, it might. You know, yeah, we might do. Uh, we might have Khan in it. We might have the Klingons. You know, there had been a lot of random uh, talk with no commitment to the bad guy, and so right. it had been floating around for quite a while. Oh, they're redoing Khan, and I, I, I think that it kind of. Um, I won't say that the rumors went away, but I don't think there was really any confirmation. And then I think it made it even more confusing when IMDb finally got the cast list up and uh, Benedict Cumberbatch was not listed as Khan, but listed as whatever his name is, Harrison. John Harrison. John Harrison, yeah. And so people are like, oh, okay, so it's not Khan. And I think that kind of is like, oh, okay. And so I, I think by the time, uh, when you watch the trailer, I guess I didn't really, I was like, uh, you know, it's. Pr- I, I think there was enough talk like, ooh, that might be a code name. And, you know, so I think a lot of people are like, oh, it's probably still Khan. And so I think I'm in the back of my head. I was like, well, it's probably Khan. In this storyline, um, but I, I and I guess when I saw the trailer, I'm like, well, at least it looks like they're not just redoing the Wrath of Khan. You know, it looked like if it is going to be Khan, at least it's going to be something kind of different. Did that did, did that bug you? It did. It made me feel like, why do they feel they have to go back to Khan? I mean, that was my biggest gripe with this is like, why can't they do something original? They have a whole new timeline now. Why go back to one of the best uh, of the franchise films and retell the story? And I, I think that kind of uh, was frustrating to me. And I, I think that even like when it came out, JJ said something was like, oh, well, you know, it was one of those things where if we didn't do it, people would be asking why we didn't. And I was like, I don't no, think people no, would be asking I, I, that I don't think all. that's the question. I really, really, I feel very strongly that that wouldn't be the question. Yeah. I can think of a lot of other questions. Yeah, exactly. But that was not ever one of them. Never one. No. Never even on that list. I um I, I feel like it 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 does some frustrating trailer things. It does give away. I mean, now we're in this era of the Kelvin timeline. We're in an era of J.J. Abrams, you know, uh, uh, effects-driven uh, Trek films, and uh, and here, you know, they do a big work of art effect sequence and they give it right away in the in the trailer and that i found that uh, pretty frustrating uh, on this end knowing that they you know they kind of have to do it i, I feel like if this is going to be that kind of film 
they're gonna they're gonna show us the the destruction of or the, at least the the entree into the destruction of San Francisco. But I feel like showing that ship doing that kind of damage in the trailer was uh, that was a miss for me. Well, I, that didn't bug me because I thought it was at least a nice surprise that it wasn't the Enterprise. So to me, because in the trailer, I'm like, oh, the Enterprise gets destroyed again. Yeah. Well, um, in, and in the, I think this is a difference in the, in the, in at least the teaser, they show a ship that looks like the Enterprise, you know, on, on fire and blistering down. And we do see that, that shot of it falling through the clouds. Right. And and now we see in this trailer, we see that it's actually clearly not the Enterprise; it's careening down over Alcatraz. Yeah, which is which is good. I, I guess uh, you know I, I've gotten to a point with some trailers, like for these big budget movies, where I mean, we first had this conversation about them giving away this big point in a trailer way back in First Contact when they give away the the shot of the Borg Queen uh, with the top of her body coming down. And uh, and joining the rest of her body. And it's just become such a thing now since the mid 90s that, you know, the studios are like, you know, if you're going to put the money into it, you got to show it. Because if that means getting more butts in the seats and making uh, the difference between a profit and a loss, then we need to do it. And I feel like that's the way the big budget trailers operate. And essentially, I would say that's kind of how the world of the, the trailer marketing machine has shifted and so I guess I've just kind of been resigned to the You're fact that that's to how it. it is. Exactly. So I, I, the trailer was fine. I, I, I enjoyed it and everything. And I guess I just wasn't disappointed by any of those things anymore. I am an island. You think your world is safe. It is an illusion. Enjoy these final moments of peace. By now, all of you have heard what happened in London. man who did it. He's one of our top agents. Your commanders have committed a crime I cannot forgive. None of you are safe. Clear the road! This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies tonight on the show, the penultimate film in our epic Trek experience. J.J. Abrams is back with 2013's Star Trek Into Darkness. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you enjoy the show and are interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. You'll get to join our back channel conversations on Slack, listen to the members-only weekend show, and get better chances of being part of our listeners' choice episodes. Just head on over to patreon.com slash thenextreel. And speaking of the listeners' choice episode, Pete, we have another one coming up. It's uh, it's going to be at the end of November. It's right after our next series, which is all about uh, South American actor Ricardo Darín. Outstanding. Yeah, so we've... Uh, in fact, I think we're doing our drawing next week. Oh, dear. I'm ill-prepared. What shall I wear? <laughs> I'd say a silk pajamas. <laughs> okay, day wear it is. <laughs> uh, whatever you suggest. Yeah, listeners just need to head on over to Facebook where we have a post about it, and they can reply to that if they're interested in entering to pick the next movie for us to talk about on our next Listener's Choice episode. Or they can tweet to us with hashtag PonyPrize. Just make sure you do so before October 23rd when we do the drawing. Everything is bigger in this uh, movie, Andy. Uh, 
bigger enterprise constructed on fewer sets means more great practical uh, shots in and around the enterprise and the bridge. It just feels good. Uh, there are so many great opportunities uh, for for digital trickery. Uh, it's there's a, a a lot of cleverness going on uh, in in JJ's hands here, and and yet uh, I, I still feel unfulfilled. Am I alone? No, you're not alone. Uh, it's it's frustrating. I mean, I don't know why they felt they had to go back to the con story. I mean, I understand we are back in a different timeline now, and con is this uh, this element that's out there in the world still. There, I don't think they're on the Botany Bay, but they are certainly um, still, you know, kind of cryogenically frozen uh, people that basically are uh you know gene- i mean they never mentioned that they are from the um what were they what was it called again the genetic wars of the, the eugenics the eugenics wars of like 1996 or something right they never mentioned the eugenics wars yeah. but um but theoretically it's the same people and i i'm assuming that in reality this movie is not even taking uh the or the kelvin version of wrath of khan it really is more the kelvin version of pre spaced because it's you know it's it's before they really start going off on their 5 year mission so this is really early in the timeline and uh, i don't know it's just i i appreciate that khan is this this critical character in the in the uh trek world but it's been done and it's been done well. Why go back to the well to try to recreate something? It, it was very frustrating for me. That is my central frustration too, and it colors everything about how I look at this movie. That this is a this is an a, an absence of of you know creative thinking, and I hear uh, you know the the team talking about how oh man we we must have rewritten and written and rewritten this story. Uh, this is Roberto uh, and Alex Kurtzman and David Lindelof. We must have been uh, written this story fifty times, and and finally the story broke. Finally, this is this is what we came up with, and I just can't help but sigh. This is what you came up with after having the enormous opportunity of a brand new Star Trek timeline. This is what you came up with. This is your best work. Exactly. Why not do something unique, something exciting and original? And and they didn't. And that to me was their biggest failing. Now I can understand the idea of, you know, taking this whole idea of terrorism and and bringing it into the Trek universe, making it very timely with with uh, our current society and everything and you don't necessarily know who your enemy is and is the is the enemy of your friend your friend or your enemy, like like all of this sort of stuff. Star <laughs> Trek frenemies. <laughs> <laughs> See, you Coming came up on the with, WB. with better material and you didn't even have to rewrite the script 50 times. <laughs> exactly. No, it's just... Ugh. I don't know. It's I. It's funny because just like you, it's like I can see this film for what they have in it, and I can go, okay, I can I can see what they were doing, and I can appreciate it on that level, and I can understand why people who didn't have a history of Star Trek before coming into this film can really enjoy this film. But I feel like people who are Star Trek fans or have been following the 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 franchise and the movies and everything. When they come to this one, I can't help but feel like they're going to feel slighted in some way. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, I, I, I asked my kids, I, you know, what do you think of it? And they, they actually, they love this. They love all three of the JJ movies. They're exhilarating. They're cotton candy movies, right? I mean, they just, they're fast paced. They move quickly. They, the characters are big and, and blustery and they're all great. But my kids also love the original Star Trek movies too. Uh, uh, and TNG, like they are in really genuine competition with one another. And, and yet they still love that, that Khan was back. They, they love that Khan is there and that he's fun and they don't think much about all the other stuff that you and I are rambling on about. The problem that I have with it is it's more of a disappointment in the creative team than in, you know, this Star Trek. Had this been, let's say, uh, the story that they came up with out of, uh, you know, Brandon Braga and, and the, you know, Ron Moore, I, I might have been less disappointed uh, than I am now. Because I could see that coming from them. I could see that happening. But this is a team that prizes themselves through TED Talks and all this stuff about the mystery box. And we're going to do things. We love the surprises and all the yah and the wah da do da. And, and I got none of that in this movie. It is, it, it is a letdown uh, of a, a philosophical scale. Um, and and I, I'm, it just makes me sad. It makes me sad. Because there's huge opportunity to do something brand new to do something bold like the dominion bold like let's introduce somebody some new uh villain that we haven't heard of that does something grand of big scale and tries to do something start, start a war man like like really let's go crazy uh and and they failed and you know what else, Andy? I think I can pick up on on your um, what you were saying. Like, I understand how they want to bring in terrorism and this guy. There's this. I really think this brilliant introduction, right? This grim specter of terrorism and humanity is at question, and and uh, we've got uh, Har- Harrison approaches Harwood and in the the opening sequence over this beautiful Giacchino piano uh, ballad introducing Harrison. The Harrison theme is just gorgeous. Everything about this this sequence works when we see Harrison he's mourning uh you know the illness of his daughter we believe you know we're, we're led to believe just by the the overall sort of sentiment of and the color and everything just screams that this is a this is a terminal condition he's going to lose his daughter and then Harrison says I can I can save her and uh, and we see that there is some sort of a deal, and then uh, Harwood, in exchange, the daughter gets better. Harwood goes and blows up the the library, right? And and that I, I actually love the feel of that. I love what it introduces to this movie. And you know what I didn't need to make this successful? I didn't need Harrison to be Khan. I don't care. They've already set up the specter of terrorism and the grim take of, on humanity in this story. It could have been a new character. Like we didn't need to do. We could have explored more without the whole genetic thing and without the whole seventy-two miss. Like we didn't need. They could have written around that. And that part I find really disappointing. Great setup. Terrible payoff. Especially because you know the entire. It feels like the entire mystery box idea that that Abrams and his team had come up with as far as this film goes is the fact that that Harrison is Khan like that to that was like the big reveal in the movie was when, you know, he's just like, I am, you know, Noonien yeah. Khan or whatever Khan Noonien saying. It's like that that was the big mystery box reveal. And it's like that's what they were saving this whole thing up for. It's like that's that's not what you use the mystery box for. It became really flat. Um I, I you know, going off your point though, I will say 
you're right. If they had left it John Harrison and just that was it. It was just this this terrorist who was kind of, uh, you know, he was I, I even uh, leave the whole story. I mean, you could drop the entire con thing and just have him. He is this this pawn of of uh, Marcus and he's being used and he's going to get back at him. And I mean, it, it all works still. It does. Uh, yeah. But and what I like about that is like. This what I feel like these guys tapped into well as far as the 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 whole concept of Star Trek is this idea of of Roddenberry's future. I I feel like they have done a good job, unlike Nicholas Myers, as much as I enjoy his films, of of pulling away from the militaristic future, and they essentially turned it into like the essential conflict in in this and in even the next film really uh, of this idea that. This story is about this soldier, this guy who, who this uh, commander, this, what is he, Admiral, is he an Admiral? he's an Admiral. Admiral Marcus. Right, Admiral Marcus. Who can't let go of war and and feels like that he needs to get that back. And so he's kind of pushing all this stuff to happen. And uh, he's trying to push Starfleet into a path that is more militaristic and, and much more aggressive. And, and, and here we are seeing our crew of the Enterprise fighting against that to preserve kind of the Roddenberry future. And I think that's a great idea to have in this script. But uh, unfortunately, it's the con thing that that muddles it all up. I think so, too. I think you're absolutely right. And, and I think, you know, even though, uh, you know, the vengeance, the, the you know, giant, the USS vengeance is, is I love the way they talk about the vengeance, especially in context with the the Enterprise. That it is the anti Enterprise. It is it it is quite literally the anti Enterprise when you look at the production design. Like they literally just took the bridge of the Enterprise and painted it black and added more cool lights and purple. But it's the same bones of the Enterprise, and that's the you know you can if you look closely you can see it. You can see how they have how they redressed the Enterprise to be the vengeance. And I think that. That there's a, a a sort of beauty in that parallelism, like in what that represents. That this vengeance is what happens when when Roddenberry turns his back, you know, and uh, the 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 scale and the size of that ship has ballooned so huge in this film, and that still little Enterprise, little Roddenberry's sort of aesthetic has to go up against it, I, I think is really it's just wonderful. It's a wonderful sort of uh, balance of power. Or, or out of power uh, that we have in this in this film, and they it just loses its way uh, in this muddled con thing. And not, this is not Cumberbatch's best performance by a long shot. Like I find his con to be positively cartoonish. Is it? Did they unhinge his jaw? Do you know? I mean, everything <laughs> he says, his his mouth, it's like he's trying to swallow a Volkswagen. I'm, it's it is so. <laughs> It's way too easy to lampoon. This is just the wrong direction for the character. Let's just say we leave the character in the movie. I, I found it uh, very challenging to to watch. And it's funny because I was noticing that too with the way that his mouth was moving. It's just like it, there's something about the way he was enunciating all of his words and he's being very rigid. I didn't mind the rigidity, but there was something with his mouth that was a little strange. So. I think so, too. Uh, so uh, now, can we go through? I have this list of crap. Can I go through my list of crap? Let's go through the list of crap. Number one, is Pike 
a trusted administrative leader anymore. You mean the fact that he still kind of tells uh, tells Kirk to shut up and stuff? He does, and then he says, he says "Shut up! We're going to take your ship away. You did something terrible. You're you're demonstrably a terrible captain based on all of the rules and all of the everything." And yet, uh, and and you know the the better angels have stepped in and they've said, "You need to go back to the academy, presumably for some uh, a little bit of retread work, <laughs> training." And uh, and instead, uh, he says, "You know, I actually uh, I have a lot of faith in you, and and I think you're going to be great anyway. Uh, so I want you to be my second officer, even though you did all this terrible stuff that I just a few minutes ago told you was uh, unforgivable. I'm now going to forgive it. <laughs> Yeah, there's a little bit of sloppy writing. In I had a hard time. Oh, just a little bit of sloppy, a little bit of sloppy, bit of sloppy writing sloppy. here. Okay, con retread. We've already talked about. Okay, Andy, I want this to be some. This is a, a pedestal for you because I know you've been waiting on it. Transwarp beaming. Damn it. Uh, so yeah, so I was I was getting confused last week when we were talking about um, my nerd questions and the and the distance of beaming and everything because it seems like the whole. Uh, the distance that they're beaming, I, I, there's this point in the previous film where they kind of pop out of the clouds um, around the rings of Saturn or something like that. And then they beam from that, from their hiding place there, they beam into Nero's ship, right? Yes. From the rings of Saturn. Yes. That's a really impressive distance to beam. Like, that's like halfway across our, our little uh, solar system. More many, than halfway. Many, yes, yes. It, that's insane. And then they introduce this whole idea of transwarp beaming, where which apparently uh, Scotty designs so that you can beam into something while it's while it's going through warp. Which obviously that's an incredibly fast speed, and now they can beam into that now. So that's uh, I guess impressive as far as what they're accomplishing for the last film. But now in this film we have this moment where Khan transwarp beams out of his ship that he's in as he's assassinating all of the the heads of the Federation. Uh, basically, a Godfather 3-style assassination is what we have going on there. <laughs> and he, yes. beams, he beams all the way to the Klingon homeworld of Kronos and, uh, through, via transwarp beaming somehow. That's right. Why, why do they have spaceships, Pete? <laughs> well, I asked my daughter that same question, and she said, so they can float around in space. If they didn't have spaceships, they wouldn't be able to be in space. They would either be at their destination or at their source. They would never be able to see the in-betweens. That sounds like something a, a teenager would say. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to admit, it's a fairly good point if, you're, if you really are Roddenberry-esque explorers. Now, I think that transwarp beaming is also dumb, and it makes me mad, mostly just because it is a ridiculous plot device that they didn't like they just didn't need i i feel like they could have written around that i know they wanted to get us to the klingon homeworld i'm question whether or not introducing the klingons in this movie was a great idea question how how useless that whole thing was it yes was so unnecessary and if you just if you go ahead and and allow your own better angels to step in and say you know what let's go ahead and cut this klingon sequence even though we have the the pancake ship and everybody gets to wear their civvies uh, and we think that's really cool. If we cut the Klingon sequence, we could maybe come up with another way for Harrison to get to beam to someplace that's a little bit more reasonable and, and have a little bit more of a mystery that doesn't involve nonsense and characters that we're going to give short shrift 
no matter what we do with them on screen. Not to mention the fact that I was so irritated when I saw the Klingon because it's, I mean, uh, I don't know. I feel Why? like the yeah. Klingon, I'm actually curious about this. Why were you? Uh, what irritated you about the Klingon? It just it just didn't look like they were. It looked like they were fiddling around with, with the looks of all of the great work that had been done on the looks of the Klingons up to this point. They took it into a, a direction that is like, and now it's now we're going into a direction that I'm not happy with. Like I preferred all the previous Klingons. All of a sudden we've got. Uh, I don't know, just much more... A lot of piercing. These are really punk rock Klingons. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just didn't really like the look of these new Klingons. Yeah, it's grim. We, and we should we should mention, Pete, for those who are thinking that they might join Patreon, um, we are going to be uh, doing our little list. Uh, inspired by the Transwarp beaming, we're going to be doing our list of, of our three uh, favorite moments in a movie that uh, were a ridiculous piece of sci-fi uh, machinery was used to further the plot. So, <laughs> I can't wait. Fun. I can't wait. Um, okay, I have to talk about women in this movie with a sub-chapter uh, entitled Spakura. <laughs> okay. Uh, I I am very frustrated with the way the women char- uh, characters were written on this movie. They were they were it just devolved. Uh, we went from I thought a great introduction of Uhura in the last movie to now we introduce another pivotal woman in the the principal cast, and she is. Uh, reduced to underwear model, which is totally distracting from the other good work that Alice Eve uh, can do and does on screen. And I I just hate that. It was useless. It was silly. It was ridiculous. Um, and, and you know, you can go back to, to Star Trek, the, the first movie, uh, where we have the underwear scene there, too. Uh, and and I, I didn't complain enough about it then. Uh, but I think it was because there was, it, it felt even, right? Everybody was in their underwear in that yeah. in that sequence. It was right. off of a love scene and everybody got in their underwear and it was great. I mean it was it's fine. People look good in their underwear. Uh but this one felt really objective uh and and I it, it frustrated me because it was pointless. So I I didn't like that and subcategory Spakura uh she became uh not a uh, I think a, a valued member of the uh Enterprise leadership team, uh, she became a a pawn in a ridiculous relationship with the that uh, Spock that did not go anywhere. I mean, it didn't mature. It didn't. It didn't feel like it. It moved in any direction beyond. They were kind of getting it on in the last movie. We better find a way to shoehorn some lines in about that. Not to mention, it was. Uh, it really turns their relationship into the situation where Spock is out fighting frequently yeah and she's like the the worried wife back at home yep and And boy that starts immediately yeah it sure does right in our first sequence um and just another side note on the the bit of women and just how women are treated in this film i've got to say i just i i right out of the gate when we first uh not when we first see kirk but when we see him after the whole opening sequence he's having a threesome and i'm just like you know yeah, got you. Why right. are we starting here? Yeah, you know, I understand that that Kirk is, you know, a lover, but this is the place we're kicking it off with for him in this one, especially in the one where he's meeting the woman who theoretically is the woman that was the 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 uh, mother of his child in the 
non-Kelvin timeline. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I know they're trying to paint this picture of this ne'er-do-well here, but I think they missed a huge opportunity. And, and it feels like they were pushing at that opportunity, right? Which is now we get a chance to see what how the crew gets to mature. We know they were all sort of young and they were thrust into this position. Uh, and now we get to see kind of how they mature into it. And the, the ultimate sort of narrative or Kirk's narrative he pushes at this occasionally, where you he, you have his his moment with with Spock. He says, "I'm leaving. I'm going to go do this one thing because this is the thing I know how to do, and you know how to be on the bridge of that ship. You need to go do that." Because he's having he's just riddled with self doubt. But that narrative was more like a perforation, a very slight perforation over the course of this movie, and it it just never really materialized into an interesting character development. I never got the feeling that I was rewarded by his journey out and back. It always felt like Kirk, the ego, uh, you know, driven by action and no consequence and no conscience and therefore, therefore no change. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Marcus and the vengeance. I, I know that, you know, we've We've already sort of talked about this, but I guess it was only a matter of time before they introduce another admiral and crew in Starfleet that'll show up willing to get friendly blood on their hands, right? I mean, this is this is the insurrection uh, administrative narrative again. Uh, this is for the greater good. Uh, we're willing to uh, relocate people. We're willing to kill people. We're willing to do things that are bad. But does it? Do you question at all uh, Starfleet's recruiting ability? that they end up with not just Admiral Marcus, but a whole crew of people that are willing to jump on the <laughs> ghost ship and follow orders to, to knock their own ships out of the sky. Yeah, that's a hell of a lot of people that they need to, to run that uh, that ship. So yeah, <laughs> it's like, I, wow, okay, I guess they... I guess there are a lot of people who are ready to go off to war. And that's uh, what, so. I mean, the number of people who end up going to build that ship, the number of people who are clearly behind it, it just makes me question, um, you know, again, that as much as I sort of sing the praises of the the parallels between, um, you know, Roddenberry's Star Trek and, and this sort of anti-military mentality, it, it's a tough sell when you start thinking too hard about the vengeance. Um but the the big nit I have on the vengeance is why didn't Kirk stun Marcus on the bridge when everybody else is stunned and he's got him? It, I mean, I know obviously we have to have a monologue, we have to have a chance for, but it's just so stupid. Yeah, he'll stun everybody yep. else, but not the just end the, the just end it. It's just it's plot. It, it, yeah. it, there's so many issues with this. It's funny because you know in our in our Slack back channels, uh, Nick Langdon, listener of the show. Uh, commented on all these plot holes and these issues that he had with the first Star Trek uh, uh, JJ reboot, and um, but that film is so much fun. Like I, I, yeah. I can see his points, but I, I don't have issues with them because I, I think that the film um, as a whole they they have such a fun time with. And this one, I like. I feel like we're all going to be on the same side with this one. At least I, I would like to think so because. This is Nick Langdon's favorite Star Trek movie. That's right, of all of them. Uh, Because it's just like, uh, this is where they, um, all of these things, um, they just aren't done in service of a story that that works on any level. Yeah, it, all of these little things are harder to forgive when the setup was so so poorly done. Um, the death of the vengeance, I think, is 
it's a real celebration for ILM. Uh, the you know the destruction of the vengeance as it careens into San Francisco um, is is a beautiful work of art. Uh, it is also an, another major tragedy in in the narrative of the film. It destroys a lot of San Francisco, um, and that is uh, largely forgotten. It's largely swept right under the rug. We don't have any sense of the gargantuan scale of what just happened here uh, because, you know, we're we're focused, obviously, on the, the mano a mano chase of Spock a, a, against, um, you know, against Khan. Um, and I don't think the film ever really pays attention to that. This is uh, on the order of Man of Steel, yeah. uh, the destruction at the end of that film. And, and I think... Um, you know, we had the opportunity in Man of Steel to kind of go to Batman versus Superman and have that opening sequence where we we actually pay tribute to the fact that the city is being destroyed, and we get no sense of that here. They leave out the 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 pain and heartbreak of of all that destruction just for you know quick and happy ending, I guess satisfactory ending. Well, and I think what's so frustrating about that is that if this is a movie that's going to open with terrorism. Uh-huh. Uh, then when you see this kind of scale of destruction here, you you should pay tribute to that somehow. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like this is, this is, it's like the film sort of had a heart and forgot it and transwarp beamed it to Kronos and never got it back. Uh, and, and it just became a, it just became a big destructathon. So. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Uh, you know, with, with various people talking about how the film is, is current and is reflecting on things that are really happening, you think that they would take that moment to reflect on the, the great loss that people had and, and, you know, the fact that they succeeded in stopping it. But at the same time, you know, there are losses and they need to remember those people. Yeah. Um, a, a smaller point. Remember that sequence when Kirk and Sulu are falling off of the drill in Star Trek 2009. I sure do. Do you remember that? Great sequence. It's a great scene. It's very exciting. It's exhilarating. And you think these guys are going to die. They're going to careen into the rocks on Vulcan, and they're going to splat. But thankfully, Andy, Chekhov is there. And he can do that. He can do that. And he runs through the halls into the transporter room because he can't, apparently, in this case, he can't run the transporter from his station so he goes he makes it and he locks on even though they're falling at terminal velocity yeah and he gets them both of them separately onto the transporter pad it's pretty brilliant why then in this movie andy we have spock and khan on that stupid floating platform the star wars platform the, the garbage truck yeah uh and they're moving much slower than they were moving, than, than, you know, Kirk and Sulu were moving in the first movie. Why then does he say, they keep moving? I can't get the look on either of them. Yeah. What happened to you, Chekhov? What happened to you? He lost confidence in himself after, uh, after he lost Spock's mom. Do <sighs> <laughs> you know what? That's probably the best case you could make of this whole thing. He's just, he <laughs> lost problem. his transporter mojo. <laughs> He did. It's like all, all it took was that one loss. Totally. Now he can't get it back. There are some things that are really uh, great, though. The warp effect is great. That's a, a kind of a quintessential thing that you look for in every Star Trek movie. What are they? How are they going to send the Enterprise to warp? It's it's always changed a little bit. And I really like this one. I remember being particularly moved seeing it on that huge, huge screen in the theater. I thought it was beautiful. I love the little the noise in the trails. It's just it's great. 
Yeah, it's it's really beautiful, very uh, very uh, shimmery and 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 just I don't know. It's 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 like Tinkerbell. Yeah, <laughs> flying yeah. through war. Right, exactly. Um, we have a couple of big moments, and and the the one that I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about is the mutation of the final death of you know in this case Kirk it's the Ugh. the homage to to Spock's death in Wrath of Khan do do you have words about that just a gut reaction how does it hit you you love well, this, it th- this fits with so many of the other elements that they pull from the Khan story i mean and, and again this story theoretically is taking place pre space siege so this is way early really kind of before the whole tv show and yet here we are um Pulling line after line from Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, uh, we've got a reference right away, early in the first sequence, uh, from Spock saying the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. We have a, a lot of other lines kind of throughout, even the the, the Khan scream after, um, in this particular case, it's after after this moment where Kirk dies, um, where Spock is the one who's like, Khan! And it's like they keep pulling these moments from it, and I'm just like, it's it's terrible. It's you know they I, the writers actually said uh, something about how it, you know it's this whole we we were ever wary of the line between reimagined homage and direct ripoff, and I'm like, yeah, you were on the wrong side of that line every single time, guys. The the <laughs> death exactly the, right. You were on the wrong side every time. Yeah, they just didn't know what side they were on, <laughs> and and the death of Kirk. Um, is swapping with with Spock, like I could do nothing but think about the whole thing as being just so uh, flat because I was just like they're just trying to hit note for note of the previous one and it's just not working. That that's uh, my sense exactly. Even though I have to say their location shooting the the location the location of the Enterprise's warp core that whole set. Uh, shot at the the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory is very cool. Uh, I loved that they gave us finally, I think, a warp core that makes sense to me. Like, yeah, it, it makes sense. So that was, it, you know, it's good. It's 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 good. A thousand paper cuts. Uh, Scotty <laughs> uh, Scotty resigns. Yeah, this is just one. It, it felt like a, a screenplay trope. It's like, oh, well, we have to create this conflict between the characters so that one of them will resign. And then, of course, that conveniently puts him into a position where he can sneak aboard uh, the Vengeance as one of their, quote, crew members. It just felt it felt tried and, and frustrating. Very frustrating, and uh, although I have to say I do like that Keenzer goes with him and that they end up <laughs> drinking together, and uh, I, I think they have a fun relationship that I would have liked to have seen explored better. Uh, I do like, however, the the uh, you know when we talk about the the ship to ship jump, right? This is the oh, yeah. the the parallel to the the drill jump, the space jump from the first movie. Now we we're putting them in essentially the same outfits. Uh, and we're going to send them from the Enterprise to the Vengeance, and Scotty's going to be there. He's going to open the hangar, and they're going to they're going to be able to shoot right in, and it'll be perfect. That was a very cool sequence. It was a very cool sequence, and it's incredible to watch them actually shooting it and see some of the way that they're you know doing the wire rigs and stuff, especially like the last part when they're flying into the. Uh, into the kind of the hangar bay of the Vengeance when when Scotty's catching them. Um, 
it's it's just a, a trip to see these guys on wires just zipping along as fast. I mean, really, it's it's all all they were really doing was painting out wires. I mean, they're just moving as that fast and landing on the ground. It's insane. Um, but, but it's just a fun sequence. It it really uh, was exhilarating. Um, I thought it was it was uh, just very kinetic, very energetic. It felt a lot like the 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 good stuff that we were getting. Uh, so much of in the first film. I I don't think we can underscore just how cool that sequence when they come into the hangar is uh, and and just how cool it was to shoot. I mean, you say, yeah, they were painting out wires, but because they found the coolest location ever uh, to, to shoot yeah. this in camera, the Spruce Goose hangar in Los Angeles is, um, I mean, they just really painted the floor black and did some cool things with the, with the, the studio lights uh, or just using stage lighting to make to black out the walls, but they didn't do anything to the walls. It's just what you see in there is what was in there largely, and apparently, uh, you know, a lot of the just sort of rigging that's along the sidewalls is just stunt rigging that they were using for the movie, and they just kind of put it in shadow. But you see it, yeah. And I think that is that. Is, see, that is what I think of when I think of J.J. Abrams as a filmmaker. That it's just a clever solution and creating a very cool practical uh shot that works brilliantly in in the sequence absolutely the way that they take practical effects and find ways to do them where they can kind of do it all in camera and they can make these really fun things happen right before your eyes it gives it brings so much to the performances of yeah. the actors it just it brings a lot more energy to it it just creates this whole vibe and i i really feel that when i watch um sequences like this in abrams films have we exhausted our list of star trek nerd questions this is a, a just one last small nerd question i think for you so Kirk says this is before they leave for their five-year mission, which, as we know, that's kind of the whole premise of the the, the TV series is they're on their five-year mission to explore new worlds, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but he says they're the first to go on one of these five-year missions. Is that Has that always been the case? Because um, I know there were previous enterprises and stuff, but what's the scoop here? That is actually a great Star Trek nerd question. I, I, <laughs> uh, I, I think that that's legit because although it seems it's legit, but really strange because they built this is not it's not just about the first, uh, you know, the, the previous enterprises. There is a fleet. There is a, a fleet of starships that are meant to travel great distances already. The Kelvin is one of them. We already blew that up and we it was clearly expendable enough. There must be others. Right. It's not like that yeah. was the only ship. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think I, I think it's a little bit strange and. Uh, again, uh, you know, tilting too far toward fan service to bring up the five-year mission um, when it's no longer plausible, right? I mean, it just yeah. doesn't make sense. There is a robust Starfleet at this point, and a robust sort of. I, I mean, I, I just think they're they're getting lazy, and they wanted to throw in some buzzwords. That's what it felt like to me, and, yeah. and that's why I wanted to ask it because it seemed like. It seemed like one of these crazy things. It's like, how can they be the first ones to be going on a five-year mission yeah. like this? I mean, especially, yeah. you know, and this is looking ahead to our next film. I know we haven't uh, started talking about it yet, but I mean, they are way out beyond, you know, where they've ever gone deep in their five-year mission in the next film. 
and they come across uh, another ship, uh, another Federation ship that had been out there for, I don't remember how long, like a hundred years or something like that. It's like that. Don't tell me that that was like just a one year trip that they got them that far. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Andy, don't make me get mad at that movie prematurely. (laughs) We're not there yet, man. Breaks. I know. I'm sorry. I'm not getting mad at that movie. I'm making. I'm. I'm getting mad at this movie for bringing up this silly idea. You're right. You're right. Thanks for the pivot. That helps. Yeah. Let's see. There you go. Do you have any? Uh, uh, do we have any uh, good backstory on this one? It's. It feels very much like. Hey, th- let's do another one of the thing that we just did. It does, but I, I thought it was interesting because uh, reading about it, they said that originally they conceived this as a retelling of Heart of Darkness. And I was like, wow, they really went off the trail for that did, one. Did any of them read it? Yeah, uh, <laughs> other than maybe like keeping darkness in the title. <laughs> it's like maybe that's that's all they, uh, that's as far as they got. Uh, the only other thing I found that was kind of interesting was that they actually had been talking to Benicio del Toro as uh, to play the villain of the film. Uh, he ended up bowing out. And then they were talking to Demian Bashir as the villain and that didn't pan out uh, when uh, they brought Benedict Cumberbatch on board. But I was like, so those are some really interesting characters, uh, some great actors to potentially have played Khan. Um, I think both of them are, are very compelling. Um, I don't know uh, if I would have preferred either of them over Cumberbatch. Um, I, I do. I, I think I enjoyed Cumberbatch in this, except when he's speaking, there's something about like those big <laughs> enunciated moments that uh, that are really awkward. But otherwise, I, I think I do kind of enjoy his presence in the film. I really enjoyed his work, except when he was awake. <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm with you, although I have to say, I, I know I, I can pretty much predict what we would have gotten with Benicio Del Toro. I, I, I have a sense of who he is. I have no idea what we would have gotten out of Damien Bashir, and that makes me really excited. I think that could have been very cool. Um, right. And, uh, and, and yeah, I think I, I, I know Benedict Cumberbatch is capable of, uh, some wonderful stuff. And I feel like this is just a, a collective misunderstanding of, of, you know, the character as it exists in my head. Right. Why yeah. didn't they ask me, Andy? <laughs> Let's do the deep scene dive. Deep scene dive. Yeah. For the deep scene dive uh, in this film, we're going to do the first scene. We're dropped into a red... Let's correct that. We're doing the first sequence. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. That's fair. This is a massive 10-minute chunk of something. <laughs> we're doing the first act. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are dropped into a red forested world, as we see from our now more experienced crew. Uh, they are at work. They are running from tribes people, and they are, are uh, you know, clearly uh, about to do something big for these people. Uh, and and I, I, we don't quite know what it is uh, this early on, but over the course of our 10 minutes together, we do. It's an interesting sequence. I, I think that we decided to go with this one because of some of the elements that it really is emphasizing here as far as the prime directive and everything. And I think there are a couple points of the prime directive that are interesting. One, I will point out, and and this actually got me quite excited when I watched it. This is a group of Starfleet officers who they go down to this this primitive planet that is is pre uh pre what did they call them pre-warp i can't remember there's a term that they had um as far as the class of planet mm-hmm. where they basically these people haven't dis- i mean they haven't even discovered space flight or anything it's very very primitive 
And unlike Star Trek Nemesis, where as soon as the natives start sh- uh, showing up and attacking them, they attack right back and start blowing them all up. <laughs> these guys, they, they're getting spears thrown at them and everything, and they don't do anything but run. I was very happy to see that. You know, they did a good job of not attacking, and I, I appreciated the effort there. That being said... There is another element to the Prime Directive, and I'm going to pass it over to you to bring this one up. Well, and I, I feel like I just have one more hallelujah about the sequence, right? Because b- before I start start pulling it apart, because I think what the sequence does very, very well is it shows the crew at work. It gives us an entree into every one of their lives, and they all have a job. We've got, uh, you know, Sulu and Uhura and Spock are up in the in the shuttle above this volcano. We have Spock getting ready in his fancy heat suit to, to fall down down into the volcano and and freeze it uh, to prevent the volcano from exploding, er, erupting and killing the civilization, this pre-warp civilization. We've got, uh, obviously, McCoy and Kirk are running from the tribe's people. They were to serve as a distraction, and they they, they are running through this red forest, and uh, we have, meanwhile, we have, uh, you know, we discover soon that Scotty is back on the on the Enterprise, and they're trying their best to, to track everybody because the Enterprise is underwater. <laughs> in the ocean but what they do here in spite of all of the things that we have a problem with what they do is they do a great job of getting us into the cruise life immediately quickly efficiently and we, we got to celebrate that right oh yeah absolutely what i liked about this is it felt like an uh, an element from a tv episode it felt very much like oh we've got to stop this volcano uh, from destroying this this tribe, we've got to sneak this out. It, like it just it felt very much like like uh, something having to do with the show. And I liked the feel. I really enjoyed the feel, the energy, the com- camaraderie, the comedy. Uh, just everything really was kind of working for me. Yes, yes, it feels good. And then you stop and you think about it for just a, uh, not very long. And maybe some things occur to you, like, for example, the prime directive fallacy. They hang their hats on the fact that the prime directive is all about not being seen doing stuff to this planet, right? It's not being seen by the locals as you're about to save their lives. But you know what? We have to look at what the prime uh, what the prime directive is is really all about, right? And and we've Picard is one of the great uh sort of the bastions of prime directive lore, right? He is constantly quoting the prime directive. It's he says uh the prime directive is not just a set of rules, it's a philosophy, right? It's a very correct one. Uh he says uh history has proven again and again that whatever mankind interferes with a less developed civilization, no matter how well intentioned that interference may be the results are invariably disastrous and so uh here we are uh after the sequence we have spock saying you should not have done this you should not have come to save me because they because of your actions we were seen by the locals and therefore we violated the prime directive and uh, oh, oh my god the end of the world but the truth is according to trek lore Helping a society escape a natural disaster known to the society, even if inaction would result in a society's extinction, is, in fact, in canon, a violation of the Prime Directive. Taking actions to generally affect a society's overall development 
is a violation of the Prime Directive. They shouldn't have been in the volcano in the first place. Makes a fun set piece, but it is an absolute violation of their whole purpose of Starfleet. So that they are uh, that they make this big deal about the fact that Kirk actually saved Spock's life uh, is is a very frustrating thing because it is an incomplete thing to be frustrated about. Well, and and again, just going back to the problems with the script, it speaks of these screenwriters' need to say, hey, let's find ways to introduce uh, some of the great quotes from Wrath of Khan. In this case, it's the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, which Spock says as he's in the volcano because he is risking his own life uh, to to save the, this tribe, right? And it's it's just it's a very frustrating realization when you see that that's really essentially why they're here doing this. And the whole idea of the ship being underwater that was just an idea that Kurtzman came up with as they were coming up with the 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 concept for the script. He just thought it'd be a great image seeing the the Enterprise rising out of the ocean as illogical as that is. So you start getting these pieces and you realize ugh, it's it's just built on so many frustrating elements. And that's it's so frustrating for me because I really really enjoy this whole opening sequence. Yeah, the the water thing is is really stupid. Um and and I I'm I, I guess I'm I'm sort of with Kurtzman. It's a cool image, like on a poster. Yeah. Uh, but as soon as you start thinking about uh, why why would they choose to do that? I love that they're capable of doing it. I love that you could even explain away the technology. I mean, it's a spaceship. It's got to be sealed. It's pressure sealed, right? It's, yeah, right. So obviously, it's it's. I guess we could say that it's capable of doing it. I don't. I don't think thrust works the same way underwater. <laughs> As it does in space and in atmosphere, I think we're kind of letting a lot of things slide there. But why would you want to? Why would you want to do that? That shuttlecraft can leave the Enterprise, whether it's in orbit in space where the the, the natives can't see these people anyway, or whether it comes out of the, the belly underwater. I, I just, I, there's no point to it. And I think, you know, this whole idea of, you know, doing it in secret, putting this giant spaceship right immediately off the coast of these of this country uh, and, and trying to be secretive about it is it's just lunacy. It really is. It's they're, they're, the tribes people's home is not that far from the cliff. And they obviously got the ship down into the ocean. I mean, just because this is going back to our little Indiana Jones thing, you know, just because you don't see it on screen, uh, you know, the filmmakers are saying, oh, it's not really nobody notices it because it didn't happen in context of our frame. That's nonsense, because somehow that ship had to get into the ocean in the first place, which means it had to come down and land in it somehow. So it's, it's all nonsense. It is all nonsense. They, the cast on screen that we have here, the usual suspects, Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, Zoli Saldana, Carl Urban, Simon Pegg, John Cho, Anton Yelchin, and Jeremy Raymond as the lead Nibiran, Tony Guma as a Nibiran, and Gary Seven as a Nibiran <laughs> Elder. I, I want to see him sign his name. I would like Gary to see seven. him. Because <laughs> it's, it's like Gary well. hyphen, then yeah. the number seven. Uh, There are some really wonderful things going on here from an effects perspective. This is an ILM, uh, another ILM treat. Um, You know, they they only had, I think, what they say, 60, 80 feet of of runway through the forest, through the red forest. And they just built it in a parking lot, painted everything red and uh, and and started running the 
running rails uh, back and forth, um, having Kirk and, and McCoy and the tribes people running <laughs> laps uh, back and forth on this thing. And they turn it out to a really compelling forest. It's a fantastic set. I absolutely love just the look of it, the feel of it. This feels like an actual world that um, I, I'm just, I'm so impressed with this world. It's like Star Wars hasn't done this and they've done all sorts of crazy worlds. And here we have this really unique world that I'm, I was so excited about learning about how they painted all these trees white. They attached dozens and dozens of leaves to of the red leaves to the trees, and they built this whole thing themselves. They did like they spray painted shag carpet red to make it like the mossy ground. I love it. It's just it's such a gorgeous location. Not to mention the Nibirans. I this I think these people with kind of their their funky double nostrils and their kind of the the white mud coated bodies. They might be my second favorite um, uh, kind of random aliens in the Star Trek universe behind the uh, the uh, Sona. Wow. I think they are so fascinating to look at. I just, I'm mesmerized by just the, the, just the really interesting feel they have. They feel like an actual uh, tribe. Like I, I buy it, you know, and I think that's impressive. Yeah, I thought it was really great, and I think the uh, just the the overall design of the effect, jumping off the cliff into the water, and and you know, recognizing that they're not really jumping off of that cliff. Everything is just so seamlessly tied together. The entire universe of this planet is just so seamlessly designed. I, it's it's really beautiful. Uh, the costumes I think play perfectly. You know, the the sort of gold of the the robes on the Nibirans um, is it. It so perfectly complements the uh, the makeup design um, work and uh, of of these people and the effects work on their eyes and uh, you know the the color palette between them and the red of the forest. I think everything just works so so well. Uh, it and it, it they didn't need to go to Hawaii. No, it, it, they they didn't. It all worked perfectly in this little creation that they made. Yeah. So, uh, Giacchino's score is uh, great through this whole sequence. A lot of energy, nice uh, little hints of the theme as it kicks in. Uh, everything. I, it, it, I I was really impressed with everything going on throughout this sequence, um, except for some of these the story problems that we have that are very frustrating. Damn it, man! That was our ride. You just stunned our ride. Other cast and crew, Andy, not in necessarily in this sequence. You found a couple of fun, uh, of fun casting notes. Yeah, there are a couple of interesting little points that I caught. Um, the first one that was that Bill Hader uh, is the voice of the, the the computer voice of the USS Vengeance. Um, it was uh, kind of a fun little. <laughs> voice to see thrown in there i can't even and, picture it did you like i now i only know that because you put it in the notes and uh, i can't in my head even picture his do you know it like can you I, 
pick it out? I don't. Uh, and uh, well, I don't remember honestly the voice of the USS right. Vengeance coming up. Um, but I do recall as I was watching it, it, just in my head, I'm like, oh, it's interesting that they went with a male voice for this ship as opposed to a female voice. Um, that was like my only thought when I was watching the movie. So now it's I'm the curious anti-enterprise, to go back and man. Anti-enterprise, yeah, exactly. The other one, which really kind of surprised me, was seeing that Heather Langenkamp, um, anyone who is a fan of uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street uh, films would recognize that name. Uh, Good old Heather Langenkamp pops up in just in in the strangest little bit part that really surprised me. Uh, She plays a character named Moto. Do you know who Moto is, Pete? I'm embarrassed to say that I do not. I didn't either. And it was only when I searched for it online that it popped up. Moto is the funky little alien uh, creature that looks like it has a big watermelon head and kind of a, a pouty toad mouth that is basically, I guess you could say, the prison or the the the, the brig warden. Uh, it's the person sitting outside of the brig when when uh, Kirk is talking to uh, Khan, it, like through the big glass wall in their <laughs> brig. And there's this little watermelon head lady like sitting there like uh, the head of the brig. That is, that is Moto. <laughs> I am looking at pictures of it right now, and I, the makeup is amazing. You can't tell that that's Heather Langenkamp. I mean, maybe a little in the eyebrows. <laughs> and uh, so here's the reason why Heather Langenkamp uh, ended up playing Moto Pete. Heather Langenkamp has kind of like had a total career shift and actually has become a makeup artist. She has a, a makeup studio. Uh, her makeup studio, I think, is um, AFX Makeup. And uh, she got into it when I think it was her husband. Um, I, I feel like she met him when doing like Nightmare on Elm Street and all that sort of stuff. And uh, and she was just like, uh, let's make one for me to wear. And so she they came up with this character, Moto, and, and that's who she ended up being because it was, a, you know, something that her husband had kind of come up with in the design work for uh, this film. That's fantastic. You go, Heather Langenkamp. Absolutely. All right. Uh, what else do we need to know here? Uh, how do you, take me into facts and tidbits, Andy. Not much other uh, that I thought it was interesting in the early development stages of this project. Um, Nimoy, apparently Leonard Nimoy said at one point that he wasn't interested in being involved in in another Star Trek film. And so they actually were considering bringing William Shatner in. And I was just like, how in, uh, in God's name would they have figured that out? It's like I, I, I was frustrated that that was an idea that they had been considering i'm glad it didn't work out because i actually do like nimoy in this and i feel like one powerful moment that i that i feel there is in this film is when he's talking to his younger self about khan and how how difficult that was in in his past grist for the mill lieutenant how did do an award season it wasn't uh, quite as popular as the previous film. Uh, it, it did get one Oscar nomination for Best Achievement in Visual Effects. Same thing at the BAFTAs. It lost in both cases to Gravity. You know That was a pretty effective film. I think that it's probably fair to say that Gravity deserved to take it in those cases, wouldn't you? Yeah, probably. At the Saturn Awards, you know, we, we always bring up the Saturn Awards. Uh, 
it is uh, it had uh, five nominations at the Saturn Awards: Best Sci-Fi Film, Lost to Gravity; Best Supporting Actor, Benedict Cumberbatch, he lost to Ben Kingsley for Iron Man Three; Best Director, J.J. Abrams, lost to uh, Alfonso Cuarón for Gravity; uh, Best Costumes, lost to The Hunger Games, Catching Fire; and Best Special Effects, also lost to Gravity. Something interesting that I noticed in its list of awards, it was actually nominated for a few Annie Awards, which are the Animation Awards. I didn't realize, uh, and I guess I just hadn't been paying attention to the Annie Awards, that they had started adding some live-action animated um, awards in here. And it actually did get a nom- two nominations for Outstanding Achievement in Animated Effects in a Live-Action Production, which I think is fantastic that they have this award now. Um, interestingly, it actually had two separate teams nominated in the category. Um, I couldn't find out what those teams had specifically done as to, um, you know, what the, what work they had done that got them the nomination. Um, but in both cases, they ended up losing to Pacific Rim. That was a big film right there. Mm. That's what that was. How did it do in the box office? Well, JJ's con redo ended up being the most expensive Star Trek film to make, whether you're looking at adjusted numbers or not, costing $190 million or $195.7 million in today's dollars. Luckily, it was a financial success and made its money back. The movie opened May 16th, 2013, and aside from some limited releases, pretty much had the weekend to itself, easily taking the number one spot. Plus, it was a Wednesday opening, so it had more time to really build up its box office take before Fast and the Furious Six opened a week and a half later, knocking it out of the number one spot. Con Redux was in the top 10 for six weeks and went on to make $228.8 million domestically and $238.6 million internationally for a total of $481.4 million in adjusted dollars. That gives it an adjusted profit per finished minute of $2.2 million, putting it in third place behind Star Trek IV and the original Star Trek The Motion Picture, making it the most profitable of all of the reboots. But with it costing as much as it did, its profit-to-cost ratio actually puts it in seventh place in the franchise. Well, that actually makes me curious about where it's going to, where we're going to go next week, because uh, I, I wonder if um, I'm curious about a potential slump. You probably, you probably already know the answer to that. I do know the answer to that, and I guess you'll have to wait till mm. next week to find out. <laughs> uh, overall, this was not the movie I wanted it to be, and I think I'm judging it uh, probably a little bit unfairly in that regard, because I, I had deeply hoped for more uh, different other, whatever. Uh, But given the story that it is, it is just riddled with holes that I have a very difficult time uh, forgiving because it's not as much fun as the last one. And I think that's uh, that that's where I'm landing. It's still a Star Trek movie, and it's the action sequences are uh, largely terrific. And as soon as I distance myself from it, I'm able to give it a little bit more love, but not a whole lot. I was hoping I'd be able to come up with more, and you didn't do a very good job of selling me on that. <laughs> Blame it on me, huh? <laughs> it's a frustrating film, and I agree with you. It's a film that, when I'm not watching it in context of the whole franchise, and I'm just kind of taking for what taking it for what it is, I feel like I can go a little easier on it. In context of everything else that we've been doing here, I, I find that it ends up being a much more frustrating watch, and it it made me much more critical of it. 
And um, I mean, there are there are good elements within the context of the film. I do like a number of things that do happen in the film. And I, you're right, the action sequences are energetic and exciting. Um, it's just those things when I start thinking about it, I just get really frustrated. And I, the fact that they went back to Khan, I just, for me, it, it's something that I feel is just an unforgivable thing that they should never have done. Absolutely agree. And with that, Andy... It's time to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and you'll see our list of all of the movies we've talked about on this show, nay, hundreds of them. Uh, and we'll see where Star Trek Into Darkness fits on the list. Or you can just swipe over in your mobile device and you'll see the bu- the word. It just says flickchart in the show notes. And if you tap that, it'll take you right to this movie so you can add it to your list. Where do we start? First up, Star Trek Into Darkness or the Oh Brother block, Pete. Oh Brother, where art thou? Oh, it's not going to get past it this time. No, Oh Brother. Mm-hmm. Star Trek Into Darkness or Atlantic City. This is uh, it probably shouldn't be so hard. It shouldn't be. I feel like I would say uh, Atlantic City because I think it's just a better movie. Um, but Star Trek is at least a little more fun to watch. Yeah, I'll give you Atlantic City. Star Trek Into Darkness or Gone with the Wind. Star Trek Into Darkness. I'm really tempted to say Gone with the Wind on this one, uh, but I'm not going to. Star Trek Into Darkness or From Hell? Uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, please. I'm actually going to say From Hell on this one. I ended up enjoying that so much more this time. I'm going to give you From Hell because it prevents us from having to do anything synchronized around timing. (laughs) Okay, next up. This one's going to be easy for me. Star Trek Into Darkness, Pete, or Volunteers? Oh, for crying out loud. <laughs> Where did this little cockroach sneak up from? I mean, we haven't we haven't had to rank this against anything in forever. Volunteers, I'm gonna have definitely. To, I'm going to have to let you take this one. You, sir, are a gentleman and a scholar. <laughs> <laughs> I, you're probably the first person to be called a scholar for choosing for volunteers. For choosing volunteers, or for anything. right. <laughs> uh, Star Trek Into Darkness... Or uh, John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Star Trek Into Darkness. Yep, I'll go with Into Darkness. Uh, Here we go. Um, More uh, in the Abrams world, Star Trek Into Darkness or Cloverfield. Oh, Cloverfield. Cloverfield, definitely. Uh, Well, that lands Star Trek Into Darkness at 276 on our chart. 276 out of 321. And how does this fare for your personal flick chart? I looked at my flick chart to see where it sat, and it was, uh, you know, it was about, uh, a, you know, in the the bottom quarter is about where it sat. Um, I re-ranked it a few times, and it kind of went up and down. Uh, you know, I would think about it, and I'd go, ah, it's okay, and then I'd re-rank it. No, I really think it's, you know, I don't like it that much. It really bounced around. It finally settled at twenty nine seventy nine out of thirty eight forty three. So it actually dropped in my rankings and it's now at about 23%. Mine is wow, it's it's not as far down as yours. I was surprised that it's not as far down as yours given how uh, I've been talking about it. It's it's right at 535 out of 999 and and it should probably be um a little bit lower. It just those were the movies it ran into. Um like I don't know, the Star Wars holiday special. I would watch this first. Uh so <laughs> It landed where it landed, and uh, that that should give me it suggests a two and a half star uh, on Letterboxd. I'm going to give it a, a two star on Letterboxd. 
and that feels probably a little harsh. We'll see how it how it sits. But I'm not as excited as I w- thought I would be after watching it critically this time to go back and watch it again. Like I just I don't have any interest in doing that. Yeah, it's it, other than maybe some sequences. Like I would yeah. go back and watch some sequences here and there because I do think there are some great sequences scattered throughout. But I'm right at about a two, and according to my uh, rating, where I put it on Flickchart, it should be about a one star. I feel like the the where it ended up on Flickchart, um, I don't think it always equates very well to the stars. I, I you know yeah, I think two yeah. stars is is pretty fair. And when I looked at the films that it was in the midst of, you know, I feel like they're all kind of in that range. Um, so I, I felt like it was in an okay spot as a two-star film. And I'd say it's a two-star and I like it because there are a lot of elements that I do like. And I, you know, as, as frustrating as it is in a lot of aspects, there are some really enjoyable aspects. I agree with you, Andy. I'll give it a like, too. All right. There it says. So two and two and a like because of Heather Langenkamp. <laughs> I give the like to Heather. That's right. Uh, so there, that's it. This was our penultimate film in the series. Where do we go from here? Holy cow. We are at the end of our monster Star Trek marathon. We are going to be hitting Star Trek Beyond, the 50th anniversary uh, film that came out last year. We're going to be closing out this uh, series with that film next week. I'm sort of surprised, as long as we've been talking about Star Trek, that they haven't actually released the next Star Trek movie. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I'm very excited. We have to hurry up and get into next week so that we can beat the next Star Trek movie. Because you know, Andy, when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. I, uh, I, I'm going with a one star, and I, I, I think I, I went with a one star because of the lowbrow uh, title. Okay. A series uh, boldly going flashy and dumb by a customer. Star Trek into dumbness. <laughs> <laughs> I said that. Join vastly overrated director J.J. Abrams and comically inept writers Orsi Kurtzman and Lindelof. Seriously, will these guys take a break from ruining sci-fi? As they take one final stab at perverting the Star Trek brand before moving on to other inevitably poorly done sci-fi projects. Watch as familiar characters are fleshed out, not at all, instead relying on throwing an occasional curveball at preconceived notions so that no more than the bare minimum of time is used to develop them. Put aside your disbelief as transporter technology in the future will work solely as a lazy plot device, operating only as a means to set up the next silly action sequence. Suspend any knowledge of physics as well as your common sense for such scenes as spaceship underwater, spaceship pulled out of orbit within seconds, Characters foregoing use of shuttlecraft to approach disabled ship and many, many, crushingly, many more. Most of all, prepare yourself for the most stupidly unbelievable thing of all, the character's motivations. This is a movie that doesn't fail and fail badly because it's a reboot or even for being unoriginal. It's a movie that fails because it's so jaw-droppingly filled with terrible plotting and hollow action. I was a little bit long-winded, but mostly it agrees with us. So I had to read the whole thing. Very nice. 
Well, I went the opposite direction, Pete, and I went for uh, straight to the positive end of the spectrum. Went to the five stars because you know somebody out there loves it. Somebody, a lot of somebody's actually. <laughs> this is a five star by loving Chloe sixty seven, who says this movie made me a true fan. I loved it. It is so full of action and drama, and the characters of the Enterprise were intense. And who knew that Dr. Spock and Uhura had a thing going on? I think I loved that part the most. My God, man, we all knew that Spock and Uhura had a thing going on. <laughs> all of Apparently, us knew that. Loving Chloe 67 did not catch that in the first film. <laughs> she knows it takes place in space too, right? Did she catch that? No idea. Blew her mind. Jeez. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>